Well, I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, one of the risks that we take as ministers in plotting out and planning that we will preach from Job is that every week we'll peel them off uh, because it's a, it's a fairly long, arduous journey. And Job is a story that is very difficult to wrap our minds around. And maybe it's either too complicated or it's just too sad what takes place. We have slogged along through 41 chapters of human tragedy and god-awful suffering. That's what one writer wrote about. I thought it was kind of cute the way that it was done. And Job's world is suddenly put right in just a handful of verses. You ready to read it? This is the conclusion of the story of Job. Job answered, God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You ask, who's muddying this water? Ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purpose. I admitted I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head, and you told me, listen and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise. I'll never again live on crust of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. After Job had interceded for his friends, God restored his fortune and then doubled it. All the brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought warm, housewarming gifts. God blessed Job's later life even more than in his earlier life. He ended up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. There was not a woman in that country as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. Job lived on another 140 years, living to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. Then he died, an old man, a full life. It's a fascinating conclusion. It's quick. All this suffering that's going on and all of this conversation. The Bible tells us that Job was an ancient man who walked faithfully with God. That seems to be a theme in the Hebrew scriptures about walking faithfully with God. And a sign of this kind of life is witnessed when everything you count as the goodness of life is taken away. In Hebrew culture, culture the goodness of life, living a life with God, was marked by a wife or wives grown sons in particular and daughters, all the bounty of sheep and camels, oxygen, etc. This is what makes you an exemplar in your community in Hebrew thought. 
This is the way in which people point to you and say, that person has it together. That guy has it together with God, and God has blessed him. Then in a sudden flurry of actions that take place within hours, all of these blessings are ripped away. And even his health was wrecked. Only then did he discover later that he had become a social experiment to settle a bet between God and Satan, the evil one. And he was left to wonder what it all meant. I can't help but think about trading places with Eddie Murray. I just can't help it. It's one of our favorite Christmas movies. And some of those movies at Christmas are not sweet and romantic. But trading places, he is a social experiment by the two godlike Wall Street financiers. That's what I think about. That's the way my brain translates this, this section. After Job's fall from an exemplary life, his tragic loss of children, the devastation and loss of all of the vast signs of his wealth, we come to this too perfect ending. Perhaps you've thought something like this. So, Job gets a replacement family, new flocks and all, and that's supposed to make the tragic obliteration of the first ones okay? Have you thought that? I have. Lots of the commentators have written about this, about how troubling it is that we've gone all this way and we've struggled so hard and then all of a sudden they put a big bow on the story and it ends up, everyone lived happily ever after is the line that normally we use. The problem with the ending of Job is it sounds too much like a quick fix. After all these tragedies and the speeches by his wife and his friends, the end of Job is altogether too neat, as if it's been disconnected from, the, from real life and not really truthful at all. From Job's final testimony, we realize he's come to acceptance. He's come to the place where he's let go of his struggle with God. He's relaxed from all the burden of these questions that he's had about everything that's happened. And the question for us is, does it ring true? In the fourth, this fourth act of Job, this is the concluding act of, of this story, he is candid it. He's candid but penitent about this intense dramatic struggle. He tells the truth about things. Finally, a moment of truth-telling, we would say, on one of these really odd and twisted stories. Job submits to a theological testing, a tour de force, because God is simply too powerful and too wise for any mortal to challenge God. Job realizes he cannot contest God's justice. He's come to realize God's ways are greater than his ways, and the only dialogue he's uh, able to sustain with God has essentially been one way. Job comes to accept he must stop speaking and learn to listen. In the arduous journey of the self, most ministers take a course called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. Most of us take that. Um, sometimes we take more than one round of it as training for doing the kind of work that we do, which is to is to interact with people at the point of their suffering or their pain or their questions. CPE 
were run through the grindstone of pastoral anxiety. You come into it, well, you come into it untested, into CP, and it's very interpersonal. You sit in a room for hours with your colleagues, your cohort, and you dig deep into the subject at hand. And so uh, one of the phrases that comes out of it is that we learn to be with, to sit with, the living human document. That sounds scientific, doesn't it? That each person is a living human document, that they are, they are someone who's living life. They're in the midst of living life, and they actually become something that we can study and, and think with together, collaboratively with those who come. And there's no telling what kind of personal crisis might show up. When a patient is wheeled into the emergency room in the ER, the damage is not just limited to the physical injuries that bring them in. There are often multi-generational families that show up in the waiting room. There are lovers that show up. There are enemies that show up. There are friends that show up. Church members show up in the midst of crisis, and they fill up the waiting room. If you walk through the ER on occasion, you will see the cluster of people that have gathered because of the personal crisis that has brought one of their, their own in. On your first night of doing duty as a chaplain in the hospital, uh, you're called to serve the emergency needs that might show up, and sure enough, your, your supervisor says to you on the way out, she says to you, you're going to do just fine. This is your first night on duty. You're going to do just fine. You'll be okay. Don't worry. And almost predictably in the middle of the night, you're called to the ICU just as a gurney is being brought in and a grandmother who's been in a car wreck, let's say, is wheeled in. And then the energy and the excitement of this tragedy that's going on is unleashed. And the doctor calls you because the doctor wants you to be there when the pronouncement of death comes with this family. She wants you to be there as this dreadful news is given. And what are you to do? As a CPE, a chaplain, what are you to do? Well, the frustrating part is there's nothing to do. There's nothing that you can do other than to be there with the family. The dead are done with the cares of life. That's over. The long struggle of life is over. You can't do anything about that. There is no hope they will be rescued or brought back to life. That's when the sense of helplessness enters into your thinking. You give away this possibility that you can do something. You see, we're fixers in life. Ministers are notorious for being fixers. And this story of Job and our own Jobian experiences frustrate us to no end. We want to tinker with the story. We want to fix things for Job and for this family of this grandmother who's brought in. And there's nothing that you can really say in the moment that seems adequate. So the next day when the supervisor comes back, the young chaplain goes over the circumstances with the supervisor, and she says, here's the deal. You can't do anything to fix the problem. That is blunt announcement to a fixer. 
Though that woman is still dead and nothing you say is going to bring her back. Your job is to make sure these people, the family and her friends, know that they're not going through this alone. Period. That's the extent of it in chaplaincy training. It's actually maybe a little more complicated than that, and I've simplified the story some, but yet this is essentially what we work with when we serve in the, in the hospital setting. When someone passes through a Jobian season, and it can happen right here in this congregation, there are no simple fixes, no miracle fixes that will reverse the tragedy one is facing. There's nothing really that can often be done. There's no advice worth giving, no fixing one another, not setting one another straight. If you're a Parker Palmer fan, you recognize these as the Parker Palmer rules for interpersonal relationships. No fixing, no setting one another straight, no advice giving. This is the way that groups come together and when we abide by the Parker Palmer rules, it's an opportunity for us to tell our deepest truth without someone interrupting us and saying, here's what you need to do which we're liable to do. In the communal life of the church, there are occasions when a church member loses a loved one or they are present to watch a dear family member take their last breath. There are circumstances in pastoral ministry where the minister does not have the words adequate for this moment of pain and loss. No one told me going into the ministry that I would be in ICU and I would watch a loved one, a church member, a friend take a last breath. Nobody told me that. That's in that class of things they don't tell you. Moments like that must be endured because when it comes to life and death, there's no such thing as a quick fix. Problems are complicated. Answers and solutions are more complicated. The complexities of life and death, of sorrow and pain, of contrition and reconciliation are ever-present possibilities, and the caring church must allow for these to exist while also testifying of the grace of God and the depths of friendship. We've had three-quarters of a million citizens in the United States who have died because of COVID. Who has not been touched by this? Countless others who did not die, but they continue to struggle with the after-effects. It's an amazing, staggering figure. And how many of us are living the life of Job these last 18 months or so? How many are caught in the endless questions that surface but don't seem to have an answer? There is in Job this unexpected ending. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. That's the way it's told to us. From beginning to end, Job lost all of his livestock, all of his, his animals, his herds of animals, and he lost all of his children. In essence, he lost everything that was of value to him. He lost his fortune, his entire fortune. And this ending, God restored his herds and doubled their numbers. I don't know where they came from. The point is not for me to figure out how do so many animals amass in in his fields in such a short period of time. That's not the part of the story that's maybe of interest. 
He lost seven sons and three daughters in chapter 1, and by the end of the story, he has seven new sons and three new daughters. Same, same. We have the phrase in our lives that would say something like this, as fate would have it. This has been a particular interest of mine, uh, something on the other end of determinism that God pulls the strings about everything that takes place in your life, good or bad, seems this the way the story is constructed. And yet on the other side of that, where is, where is fate? Where is luck? Martin Marty, the church historian of note, preached a sermon one time called The Gospel of Luck. I'm really intrigued by that. I get a lot of God willed this or that. I don't get much uh, in faith and among my peers about the value of luck, just luck happening. The phrase, as fate would have it, is a robust way of observing. Sometimes we twist and turn on the events that occur in our lives, recognizing that sometimes they're good events and sometimes they're tragic. It's this or it's that. It can go multiple ways in life. But on occasion, more than we can know, even the tragic events have the possibility, the tendency even, to act positively in our regard. I think that's a bit of gospel work, that even the most tragic of things can be redeemed, we would say in church, can be transformed into something of incredible value to us. Isn't that how life turns out for us? I think it is. Sometimes we make the smallest imperceptible turn and our lives are spared. We didn't even know it. A job is offered or a job is taken away. We get a phone call and with it our lives are changed. Inexplicably, our lives take a turn here or a twist there, and the arc of our lives unpredictably shift and twist in a new direction. It's almost enough to drive you crazy if you try and keep up with it all. It's better to try and keep up with it, though, than to just watch it pass. Remember, the, I talked about how we move from event to reflection? This is the reflecting it of things. In her book, God's Medicine, Barbara Brown Taylor tells us that providence is not about God's will overriding our own. It's more like a dance, a mysterious dance that takes place between God's freedom and our freedom, between God's will and our own will. And in this dance, it is not God's job to keep bad things from happening. That's just not what God is up to. Bad things do happen. They occur. They come across the portal of our life and they become something. They do happen. Are fate and whimsy merely the shallow end of the pool in the absence of seeing how God is involved in our lives? Maybe. God's job is not to prevent bad things from happening or to make good things happen. God's job is to stay present in our lives creating whole worlds out of total chaos, breathing life into piles of dust, taking the unfathomable wreckage of our lives and making something fresh and new out of it. 
All of us want a happy ending to the problems we face. But in life, our happy moments are mixed in with our share of occasions when we suffer. It is a mix. Life is a mixture of all these kinds of moments. Some are accidents, unknown to us, only in effect, while others are self-inflicted, caused by our own actions, our own decisions, or whatever it is that we do to tip over the dominoes in that direction. Perhaps Job is a highly dramatic story meant to illustrate that none of us live perfect lives, supremely happy in the most affluent ways, but that we all mix, we live in the mix comprised of good and bad. This is what happens in life. Too much of one or the other, and we wouldn't know what to make of it all. Somehow the the balance of one over the other is, is about the best we can hope for. In the end, Job's wealth increased, and he lived 140 more years. Job saw four generations of descendants, And then the Bible tells us Job died old and full of days. Boom. The end. Roll the credits.